0: What is up, everybody? Uh, yeah, I got my coffee. I feel good. I hope you are doing well wherever you are, wherever you're listening from. And I hope your day is going good. Uh, today, I am pretty excited and energized. I just uh, got back from uh, essentially putting together this meetup, this entrepreneur and startup meetup here in Northwest Arkansas. And essentially what happened was I, I noticed that there really wasn't a way for people to connect. And and really, if you've ever been in the entrepreneur journey, you would know that it is just kind of super – well, it's two things really. First of all, it's kind of lonely, which isn't <laughs> – not like the sexiest thing to say about entrepreneurship, right? Because all you ever hear about is the stories of people who became like mega millionaires. So. Anyway, it is kind of lonely. I mean, you aren't really around very many people in general, but also beyond this, uh, it's it's also a, it's, it's it can be hard to be around people who treat you seriously, who are like, oh, you're an entrepreneur. Like what went wrong, right? Or like what happened to you or, you know, whatever the case may be. I realized we just didn't really have something locally for entrepreneurs to connect and just, uh, you know, just to share wisdom with one another, just to help each other out. So organized a meeting today. Uh, happy to say that we had about 10 people who showed up for that meeting. Uh, pretty exciting stuff, and it's only going to grow from here. But that's it's actually not the point of my my conversation today. Today, I've been thinking about something, and that's, that's essentially... Why are Fortune 500 companies dying? Which you may not realize that that's the case. In fact, if we look back in history, we would see that Fortune 500 companies had a lifespan from, from inception to bankruptcy. These companies had a lifespan of about 50 years. What's really staggering is that nowadays, the latest data is telling us that these companies only have about a 12 to 15 year lifespan before they cease to exist. In fact, if you ever read the book, a really great book for you to check out. It's called "Good to Great" by Jim Collins, and essentially, what it is, it's a look at all of the major companies who made it, compared to ones who were just in the in the time frame were just as successful, that had these monopolies that were incredibly known at the time, but then now to this day no longer are around. In fact, what's really interesting about the book is that it even mentions companies that today are no longer around. And so whenever it talks about, you know, these pristine companies, some of them aren't around anymore. You know, Circuit City it talks about. There's no Circuit City anymore, right? I mean, it's totally gone. But what's really staggering is you have companies that, you know, they're on this list because they're incredibly profitable. If you're not familiar with the Fortune 500, it's essentially, it is the 500 most successful companies in the United States. It's the most profitable companies. So as you could guess, Walmart, we call it fortune number one. Love it or hate it, Walmart has figured out how to be successful in fact, it had a span of time where it went from 20 billion to 200 billion dollars in 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 gross revenue. I mean, it it was growing at a phenomenal rate and so it's it's in fact, if you think about where you live, you could probably think also about how close there is a Walmart store to where you are. So understandably, it's Fortune 1. You also see plenty of other companies that are on that list. You have Tyson, you have J.B. Hunt, uh, also, which are companies in, in my area. You have companies like Amazon, which just expanded from its first location, I think it's over in Seattle or somewhere in the Northwest, to it announced today that it is uh, it is, uh Creating a second headquarters over in New York City, and I think it was called Crystal Lake or Crystal City, somewhere in Northern Virginia. And so you have these companies that continue to grow, continue to do well. And here's what would be shocking to think about Can you imagine a day when Amazon ceases to exist? Can you imagine a day when Walmart is no longer around? can you imagine a day where you know you're telling your kids oh i remember when walmart was massive and your kids are like what's walmart <laughs> i mean like imagine if they were saying what's amazon what huh i mean that's kind of what it is today with sears right i mean somebody mentioned sears and people i'm i'm a millennial i'm i'm uh, i'm proud to say i'm a millennial or i don't know how proud i am actually depending on you know and by the way it's not really fair to talk about millennials cuz millennials it's like a 20 year range of millennials so I digress. But when someone talks about Sears today, we really have no concept of what Sears is like uh, because it's been so out of the picture for so long. And then today, it's continuously announcing the closure of stores. In fact, there's some controversy around the current CEO really just enabling the strategy to liquidate the store as fast as possible. Now, years ago, a decade ago, longer than a decade ago Sears was the company it was the company where they had something called the Sears magazine and it was almost like uh you know think about black friday for example when all the ads come out for black friday you know walmart puts it out best buy puts it out target puts it out they put out the black friday ads they actually put it online and what happens is you can get on there and you can see what are the deals going to be what are, what are the deals that are going to be out for black friday it's pretty exciting right Well, Sears had something similar. It's called the Sears Magazine. And when you got it in the mail, it essentially had all of the things that they would be offering. And it was kind of exciting, right? It was kind of like Christmas. It was like, ooh, what does Sears have now? Sears was such a titan at the time. In fact, it had an opportunity to get into the digital space before Amazon even did. In fact, it had the capital. I mean, Jeff Bezos was, he was shipping books as Amazon out of a garage, right? He didn't have the capital that Sears had, and yet Sears missed the opportunity. They fell into, uh, essentially, they they fell into being this no-name company where no one really talks about them. No one ever really goes to Sears anymore. I think the only products that people are still aware of from Sears are their major appliances, like a washer and a dryer, right? other than that you never hear anyone say man i just can't wait to see what sears has this year <laughs> or this holiday season man i can't wait to go check out sears it doesn't it doesn't exist right and in fact i don't even know how many locations there are well what's really shocking about sears is that there are companies today who are the next sears we've seen it a little bit with toys r us we will see it with current massive companies that are on the fortune 500 list. If the data is true, you have a handful of companies whose lifespan is going to be about 12 to 15 years. What's so interesting. I was actually in a room with one of these fortune 500s and I was talking to some of their leaders and we were talking about this concept about companies that will cease to exist in the future. And it was so funny to me because someone raised his hand and he was kind of offended that I was even, even suggesting that this could happen to his company. And he raised his hand and he said, oh, that would never happen here. We we wouldn't be one of those companies. And he was kind of saying it in the sense of like, move on already, like, we, we don't need to spend time on this. This isn't going to be us. And it was, it, it was interesting to me because I remember thinking at the time, well, bro, buddy, pal, no one thinks they're going to be part of that list, right? It's kind of like marriage, for example. We know that marriage, the divorce rate is around 50%. In fact, it's actually a little bit lower today than it was 10 years ago. But we know the divorce rate is around 10%. No one gets married and says, whew, man, I'm really expecting to be part of that 50% who gets divorced. Right? No one says that. No one thinks that. No one expects to be the company that goes bankrupt. In fact, often we have the opposite. We have these delusions of grandeur where it's like, you know, my company is going to be the next Fortune 1 or what have you. And it's interesting to me that so many companies are unwilling to face the problems that they have and they're unwilling to recognize that there is a clear path to bankruptcy if they don't resolve their problems what's interesting just like a marriage when a marriage heads towards divorce it's it's usually not this massive thing that happened normally what happens it's it's a lot of several things in fact if you talk to a couple who who gets divorced after 20 years you hear things like we just drew apart you know we just drew apart it just I just, I just kind of fell out of love with that person. It wasn't that he or she woke up one day. They were madly in love. I mean, you know, singing to each other. I mean, just this incredible, you know, what you see on a rom-com. And then the next day, I'm out of love with you. It doesn't happen that way. It happens over a series of time. And I think the same thing is true for businesses when we say that I'm not going to be that company and yet we fail to realize the small, seemingly insignificant things that are actually leading us toward. Towards insolvency, bankruptcy, um, you know, being a toxic work environment. You know, I, I was working with a company. I can't remember if I've told the story before where two people weren't speaking to each other. It was a team of four or five and they hadn't been speaking to each other for about six months because they didn't like each other. To them, that's ah, not a big deal. It doesn't really affect our day to day. You better believe it affects your day to day. You better believe your culture impacts your productivity and the results that you get out a lot of times we're unwilling to see these small things because we think that they are really small when in fact they're leading us towards failure as a business. Same thing is true with us as people and life in general. So you have these companies that are essentially dying and their 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 lifespan is shortening more and more with each passing time. And And I've been thinking a lot about what is it that's causing these companies, especially these big successful companies? Because I mean, think about this: these are companies that have figured something out correctly. They've they figured out the market enough to develop their business into a million. In fact, if they're in the if they're on the Fortune list, they're a multi billion dollar company. So they're doing something right, right? So how could they then somehow become a company that? Fails that doesn't pan out that struggles you know what what is it now part of it I think is arrogance right you know the guy who raised his hand and said oh that that won't be us let's move on right part of that's arrogance part of it also and it's really what I want to talk about today it's this issue of complexity and I want to think about this a little bit complexity in the workplace what I've found is that the larger companies get the more complicated it gets between departments, the lack of clarity grows to the point where it's 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 a challenge to hold people accountable. And frankly, day to day, it's sometimes not even clear what each person is doing. This complexity continues to grow because you have so many uh, you know, spinning tables, so many spinning plates. You have so many things that are happening that complexity continues to grow. In fact, you have people in these large organizations who can't answer very simple questions. Questions like, "What is my job here? What is expected of me? How am I going to be rewarded?" Right. In fact, I was talking to a guy who owns this. He owns this manufacturing uh, company. And he has about 30 employees and he's done well for himself. And he's wanting to grow his company from 30 employees to 60 employees this next year. So he basically wants to double in size. And he was talking to me about how do I, I don't know how to create an evaluation system for my employees, right? I, we kind of just, we kind of just operate on trust. We kind of just hope that everyone's kind of doing what they're supposed to be doing. But, but actually what's happening, this was really interesting is my employees are getting pretty frustrated and I don't know why. Why are they frustrated that I'm not giving them like a one to five rating? Well, it seems kind of nonsensical, but when you think about it, why wouldn't you be frustrated, right? It's kind of like if if you were working for this company and you didn't know how you were being measured, you didn't know how you're being evaluated, you didn't know what was expected of you. If the expectations aren't clear, you're bound to be frustrated, right? I mean, people want to know what's the mark that I need to achieve. I was thinking about this topic and... In fact, I, I, I thought about this one specific movie. You may have seen it. It's called Office Space. It is an ultimate classic movie. You need to see it. But essentially, you have this company. I think it's called Inatech or Intech. This company where they hire these consultants to come in and clarify expectations of employees. But most of all, they want, they want to bring some simplicity to the complexity of this organization because this complexity has essentially, it's hurt the productivity of the organization. And so I have a clip from this movie. It's the two consultants and they're interviewing Bob, who's one of the employees at this company. Go ahead, take a listen. What you do in Initech is you take the specifications from the customers and you bring them down to the software engineers. Yes, yes, that's that's right. Well, then I just have to ask, why couldn't the customers just take them directly to the to the software people, huh? Well, uh, I'll tell you why. Uh, because engineers are not good at dealing with customers. Uh-huh. So you physically take the specs from the customer. Well, no, my my secretary does that. Or the facts. So then you must physically bring them to the software people. Well, no. Yeah, I mean, sometimes. Uh, what What would you say you do here? Well, look, I already told you. I deal with the customers so the engineers don't have to. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. Can't you understand that? What the hell is wrong with you people? Okay. <laughs> I love this scene. It's one of the most iconic scenes in this movie. I love Bob just screaming, I'm a people person. And then you have, you know, the consultants being like, "What do you what do you do here, man? What do you even do here?" And what's interesting is people they they laugh at that scene first of all cuz it's funny, but second of all cuz it's so relatable. Right? And it's not even relatable for myself like what am I even doing here? But it's relatable for other people too where it's like, "What what is your job?" Right, I was talking to a guy today who is CFO. He was asking me for advice, and his CFO had essentially told him, "I don't know what you do here." Right? That's a CFO telling him that, and he's like, "Well, I don't know what you do here." <laughs> so neither one knows what each person is doing at this job. And what's interesting is I, I think the reason that companies, because because you could argue that complexity has always been around, but I think it's even more so a challenge today. Complexity is even worse. Because we have more than any other time in our history, we have an access to data that we've never had before. And here's what I mean by that. Think about the public education system, which I used to be a public education teacher. The public education system, if you're not familiar with how it works, essentially you have uh, the, the funding that goes to a school, the federal funding that goes to a school is is based on the end of year test that students take and the scores that they attain. So students, you know, obviously you have your test you take in the class and that's for your teacher, but also the school as a whole, each state is administering a statewide test to the students and those, that data is then going back and it's determining based on how many students pass it and how well they do. The federal government is then determining how much money to give to that district so as you can imagine, what ends up happening is you have, and this is a whole different story, but you have some districts who are cheating. Uh, you should check out the Atlanta Public School District, by the way. It's one of the biggest cheating scandals in the history of our country. But you have districts that are cheating because they want to have really good test scores because that, that then dictates how much money they're going to get. That's going go to go into the, the infrastructure of the school, the teacher's pockets, the more importantly, in some cases, the administrator's pocket, at least in their mind, But more than ever, you have access to data now that can help teachers make wise decisions. In fact, there's so much conversation now on being data-driven that if you want to be perceived as a good principal or a good boss, all you really need to do is talk about the data. But what's actually happened, because there's so much access to data, because like for, for example, now, you know, think about back in the day, let's talk about 10, 20, 30 years ago, maybe you would, you would, um, the teacher would just hand grade all of the tests. Now you have Scantrons, right? And they've been around for a while, but now you have like the new version of Scantrons where you can actually, all of the students' data can be put in and you can actually see normative data. You can see analytic data on. Which questions were the most challenging, and what's what's the average percent of mastery on each topic that's reflected in these questions? i mean there's there's quite a bit you can do with it, but what ends up happening though, is this data we have we have more than any other time in our history we have an access to data, and yet we have people who don't understand how to use the data. A couple of examples of this. I was uh, in one of my school uh, classes, you had my class and you had someone else's class and then you had a third teacher's class. And we were looking at, after we had all taken this test, we were in this meeting and we were looking at the percent passing score of these tests. And my class was something like an 88%, someone else was like an 89%, and someone else was like an 86%. And I had something like 40 students, someone else had like 23 students, and then the third teacher had like eight students, because uh, our class sizes, they're never the same, right? Well, so we had someone from the district who, her position was like data specialist, or um, I can't remember her title, but her job was to analyze the data. And so we're in this meeting, and so we're looking at the test scores, and she's saying, oh, Mr. Benz, your percent is here, and Mr. So-and-so, your your percent is here, and Uh, so we need to be doing what you're doing and Mr. Benz, you should stop doing what you're doing. Right. And so you're, you're making education decisions based on these percentages. Well, what happens is I remember we had a teacher named Mr. Henry, who was like the smartest person on our team. This guy was a genius. And Mr. Henry's doing some math and he, he raises his hand and he says, these percentages aren't significant. And the data specialist says, What do you mean of course they're, they're significant. I mean this, this one teacher got, you know, two or three percent higher of a score than this other teacher. So we does that doesn't that percent matter? Of course it and, and he was like, No, no, they're not they're not statistically significant, which if you're not familiar with statistics, significance essentially it essentially means is there a difference, a significant enough difference that shows that the factors leading to those scores, that that there was actually something that one teacher did that was better than the other teacher. In other words... If, if two numbers are not significant, but they are different, then it's just random chance or it's just external factors that you can't really account for. And so significance essentially is showing that there really is a significant difference between these scores. So he's done this math. He's he's analyzed the data, and he says they aren't significant, significantly different. They, they might they may as well be the same number well, the data specialist did not understand the term significance and did not understand what he was saying. She thought that he was just saying the numbers are not different. And she's like, they are different. One's 2% higher than the other. I don't understand. And I realized in that moment, oh my gosh, this woman who is the salaried staff person, who's the data specialist does not understand data. And the complexity that comes with that is think about all the the decisions that are made because we use data inappropriately. There was another d- uh, school district in Arkansas that essentially it rolled out this massive English initiative. And there was a student who was an English language learner who, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself here, essentially one year. They had something like 50% of the students, of, of their Hispanic students, passed this English portion of this exam. The next year, they trial ran this English, English initiative to teach students literacy a little bit better. And they rolled out with this big announcement that their passing rate for Hispanic students had risen from 50% to 100%, proving that this initiative was successful. And so what they were going to be doing was they were going to be rolling out this initiative across the entire district. Everyone would be doing this initiative. Think about the time, money, resources to, to do this, right? Well, it came out that this school that had served as sort of like the trial, the, the trial location for this initiative, when you actually looked at the data, the 50 percent to 100 percent passing, they had two students total who were Hispanic. The first year, one of the two passed the test. That's 50%. The second year, both students passed. That's 100%. In no way is that statistically significant, though. In no way is that a meaningful conclusion. And yet, the data was misleading, but it led to all of these decisions being made in the district on on this nonsensical number, right? And this is no different in business. We 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 run into complexity to a point of silliness all the time, right? Think about protocols, procedures, things that are incorporated that keep us from actually being productive. I remember my wife and I. Uh, I love hibachi style. Uh, uh, restaurants, you know, where you go out and they, they cook the food in front of you. It's my absolute favorite food. So I was taking my wife on a date and we go to this place, this, this restaurant and I walk in and she says, we, I said, Hey, table for two. We want to sit at the, the hibachi grill. And she takes us over to this table. That's it's massive. I mean, it's, it's, and I don't even, I don't mean massive in terms of the table being massive, the crowd of people already sitting there is massive. And if, you can imagine these tables, I mean, they're large, but they can fit maybe eight people. Well, this one has 10 people there, and they bring up two chairs for me and my wife to squeeze at this table, right? So there's 12 of us at this table. I am, my shoulder is literally touching my wife's shoulder, and it's also, it's up against the person sitting next to me, right? I mean, it's real personal. It's real, I mean, we're, we're, we are shoulder to shoulder, right? So we're sitting there for a couple of minutes and i'm I'm getting a little a little agitated, right? I mean, I mean, think about if you were sitting in this circumstance and I'm thinking like this was supposed to be a date, it's a special occasion. I'm kind of like, what are we doing?" So I get up, I go back to the front to the host and and i i say, hey i think I think we would rather um sit at a different table at a new table if that's okay with you, and I'm trying to be very polite and she says oh i'm I'm really sorry, but when we have this many chef on staff, we can only have this many tables. And unfortunately we can't add another table. uh, So you'll, you'll have to sit at that table. And so I kind of look over back to the table and I say, well, well, ma'am, um, if you, if you look at this table, you'll see that there's, there's plenty of people here, right? There's way too many people here. I, I I think I'd rather just wait. And she says, well, unfortunately our, our, our protocol says that you can't wait. You have to sit at that table. And I said, ma'am, I, I don't understand. I mean, like, what would you do with a new guest who walks in? I mean, would you put them at that table too? And she goes, no, if a new guest walked in, we would put them at a new table. And, um, but unfortunately you're not a new guest. You've already been here. And so I, I I'm kind of thinking about this and I, I look at her and I say, okay, so you're telling me if I was to leave right now with my wife and walk outside for five minutes." And if I was to walk back in as a new customer, then and only then would you put me at a new table? And she goes, yes, but that, that would be ridiculous. And I go, exactly, exactly. It is ridiculous. And she kind of laughed and was like, okay, I see your point. And she fortunately put me on a new table and it was all fine. It wasn't a big deal at all. But, but I've always remembered that story as that, that is literally the epitome of ridiculousness. When our company doesn't operate in simplicity, we operate to a level of complexity that frankly hurts the customer, right? Another great example of this, I was, uh, there, there's a great story about Frito-Lay where Frito-Lay, this is before Frito-Lay became massive. Frito-Lay essentially, essentially had their salespeople who, you know, they're, they're the direct contributor to the bottom line of the company. Frito-Lay had these salespeople and they had all of this new analytics tool where for a salesperson to actually get out there and sell. And and the thinking on this was all, it, it makes sense conceptually, right? So a person has an idea that, okay, we need our salespeople to actually make a strategic decision here. So let's give them all this analytics tool. Let's give them all this paperwork. Let's give them all this stuff to go through so they can make really strategic decisions and they can spend their energy the right way. Well, What ended up happening because of all of the sales data, because of all these analytics tools, what actually ended up happening was you had people who were spending more time going through data than actually getting out there and selling. You had people who rather than simply doing their job, their job had become so complicated that that they weren't even doing what they were hired on to do, or they were trying to do it, but there was so much red tape, so much bureaucracy, so much complexity to determine what they actually needed to do. In fact, there was another element of this, you know, the Frito-Lay, they're known as, as making potato chips. When it came to quality assurance, there also were all of these hoops that you had to jump through to actually make sure that the chips were of good quality. Well, a new CEO came in and when this guy came in, he essentially said, okay, this is ridiculous. I mean, we have, we have, we have stacks of paperwork beyond paperwork, beyond paperwork. There's so many steps. I want to throw all of this out. I want to throw out all of the analytics tools. And what I want to do is I want salespeople to actually get out there and sell. I want to get people back to selling. Furthermore, when it comes to the quality of our potato chips, if there's anyone, I want to install a button on the line. And if anyone sees a chip that is of low quality or not up to our standards, I want that person to have the autonomy to be able to press the button and stop the whole line and get rid of that chip. Kind of makes sense, right? I mean, it's let's, let's clean up the complexity and make it happen. Well, here's what's shocking about this story. All of the executives who were already there when this person came in, you you would hope that they'd be like, that's such a great idea. I love that idea. Absolutely. Let's do it. But instead, you had this level of arrogance where they were unwilling to see that their complexity was damaging their productivity. So what actually ended up happening was you had a large portion of the executives who actually went on to resign because they were like, you're going to ruin this company you seem like a great guy, but I can't get behind this. This isn't going to work. You're nuts. We've, you know, this is my all-time favorite. We've spent all of this money on, on these tools. We're not getting rid of them now. Right? So you have these executives who tender their, their resignations and the CEO instills these new policies. You know, if you're a salesperson, get rid of the paperwork. I just want you to get out there and sell. And if you're a person on the line, I want you to be able to just press this button, stop the line, keep our chips high quality. And the fascinating thing that happened is it just, as he put it, it just, it just empowered the people. It unleashed the power of his people. Their market share grew, their revenue grew, their net revenue grew. I mean, this company became hugely profitable and successful to now the Frito-Lay company that we know today. All because he was willing to provide some clarity to the complexity, right? A friend of mine, he always loves to quote, I think it's Andy Stanley who talks about what's the number one quality that people look for in leadership. And you would think the thing is charisma, right? I mean, think about, in fact, if you look at job hires, the person who is more charismatic often gets the job over the quiet, more introverted person, the charismatic person is often overestimated. The the introverted person is often underestimated, love it or hate it. It's just, it's just the way it is, right? Well, uh, apparently what Andy Stanley was talking about was the number one quality above anything else is not charisma, it's clarity. And a good leader, a good boss is capable of bringing clarity to his or her people. What are we even doing here? How does this work? What's everyone's roles? How does my work contribute to the bottom line of the company? Or how does my work help the customer? Even if I'm two, three, four steps detached from the customer, why does my work matter? I'll never forget. I used to be an adjunct professor at the U of A and I was teaching a class on ethics and I had this woman in my class and she was talking about how she felt very unethical because she was working for this company where she literally did not. And this this is seriously, this is a true story. She did not know what her job was. She had no idea, no clue. She came to work for this company, this major company, didn't know what her job was, she would spend a little bit of time working each day, just trying to figure something out. But about six out of the eight hours of the day, she was on Facebook. She was browsing Reddit, YouTube. I mean, just killing time. And the reason we're talking about this about this in an ethics class is she's saying, I just, I feel so guilty because I feel like I've robbed my company of all of this, this time and money, which which she had. But on the same time, she, no matter how many times she tried to understand what her job was, the people who were over her could not articulate very simply what she should be doing. So I asked, okay, what ended up happening? Did you get fired? I mean, what, what happened? She said, well, actually I quit. And I said, well, did you quit because you just felt too guilty? And She said, no, I quit because actually one day I walked in and they had given me a direct report who was going to report directly to me and who they wanted me to train and because I didn't even know what my job was, I thought, there's no way I can help this other person do their job, right? You know, if anything, it kind of reminds me of the uh, Office episode where Jim, his boss, it's it's the new boss when Michael Scott's not there. And he says to Jim, hey, I want a rundown of all your clients, And the whole episode is spent on Jim figuring out what the heck is a rundown when very simply if he had just asked or if the boss had just been a lot clearer on this is what I mean by this, then Jim probably wouldn't have wasted his whole day figuring out what a rundown is. So when you think about companies like this, tell you what, it's not unlike some companies out there. It's not unlike some of these massive companies that become so large There's no alignment between the departments. There's no alignment between what one person wants to see accomplished and what someone else wants to see accomplished. Right. I mean, there's kind of the old adage of the, the, the tension between the salespeople and the operations people. I mean, you, you told the customer we do what now, you know, there's, there's, there's often this tension between departments and that's because there's not this overriding clarity on what do we do here. It's actually why mission statements that became so cliche are now more than anything. So importantly, uh, they're, they're just so crucial, for an organization because that's the rallying cry for what we do here. In fact, if you, t- if you ask a company what their mission statement is and they give you back a two paragraph response, that's a company that isn't clear on why they exist, right? If you have a company that, you know, you, you can't simply articulate what we do, what my job is, what your job is, it's impossible to do your job well. And as we're seeing with these Fortune 500 companies, there is so much data now and such little avenues to understand it correctly that we're creating these massive initiatives, these massive decisions that frankly are a huge waste of time, money, and resources. And what we have found out to be true is that it's so important to do it right the first time because you won't have the time, money, and resources to do it over. I think about this one company. It's a major auto insurance dealer in our country who I was working with, who they were essentially wanting some trainings for their employees. And I said, this is what we need to do, right? Well, they come back and say, well, it's not that simple, yada, yada. And so they wanted us to change it some more. It's like, okay, we'll, we'll fix it. We'll work on it. We'll we'll come up with this solution instead. Well, that doesn't really work. And here's why. Well, what was so interesting was this, this discussion phase of of going from the initial conversations to actually incorporating the actual work, the problem got so complicated in their mind. It got so complicated that actually after about a year, it took literally a year to get to the point where we actually didn't get the contract. But I remember telling my boss, I think this is a good thing because these people are so lost in complexity. I don't know how much of an impact we would have made. And stuff like that is not uncommon for companies. So if you're listening today and you're thinking about, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're on one end of it where you're you're running an organization, you're you're running your business. Man, I want to challenge you to think about: is there simplicity in my business, or is there complexity? Doesn't mean that your work isn't difficult or challenging, but is there simplicity? Meaning, do my people know what's expected of them? Do they know why we're here? Do they know why our work matters? And if you're someone on the other end of it, you're an employee in a job, or or you're somebody who. You know, you're finding yourself saying. In fact, I was thinking about my my brother in law who was working for this boss. Who so I think the boss ended up getting let go. But he was talking about his job, and he was saying, "Yeah, some days I walk in and I don't. I just don't even really know what I'm supposed to be doing here." And I was listening to this, thinking, like, oh, that is so bad. That is not good." Mm-hmm. You know, they've wronged you, right? And it's it's not on him to fix that. It's on his boss to be really clear about what they should be doing, right? I mean, think about all the lost productivity that comes in that. So if you're on that side of it, I want to challenge you to be candid and direct and simply say, look, I don't know what I should be doing here. Frankly, you might have a boss who responds incorrectly to that. They may take it personal. They may respond inappropriately, but for your own sanity, for your own, you know, peace of mind, if you don't have that clarity, you have to fight for it. You got to be assertive for it. Whatever side you fall on, whether your business is a small business or a, a, a major company, you have to bring simplicity to your people, or you'll be one of the you'll be one of the companies that's part of the statistic. Right, the twelve to fifteen year lifespan. If you're a smaller company, it's probably less. All I know is for my company, I don't want to be part of that statistic. I want to try to make it as clear as possible what we're doing and what we're accomplishing. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, Enjoy the holiday season. we got Thanksgiving coming up. Spend some time with your family, your relatives, your friends, what have you. Uh, I appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you later. See ya.